electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. Jim and Carl have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to wrap up. The week of trading, you can see we are headed for what will be a uh, down and significantly down open this after yesterday's uh, significant sell off as well, particularly in the Nasdaq. Our roadmap does start more or less there with futures moving lower as investors digest bank earnings this morning. We've got JP Morgan, Citi, Wells, also BlackRock all crossing the tape. Plus tech weakness. The S&P 500's tech sector already down more than 5% for January and eyeing more declines at the open. And Omicron and inflation headwinds, retail sales sinking nearly 2% in December. We will dive into those numbers as well. All right, let's start with uh, the overall markets uh, and bank earnings. You know, Mike, the brief conversation we had when we sat down here, I thought was interesting. You said to me, and we were talking, of course, about the sell-off yesterday in the NASDAQ, fairly significant one. Growth is not in favor right now. Uh, And the real question is, do you buy those growth dips or is the Fed really behind the curve? Investors have been moving into the bank stocks over the last two weeks, but today's numbers may give them some pause. Exactly. Banks and energy have been really supporting the market while you have this this exodus from growth. Uh, It has still mostly looked like a very choppy, bumpy, anxious rotation as opposed to just, you know, a real exit from the overall market. But you have the negative reflex reaction to the bank earnings, which is, you know, in a weird way, not that surprising. The banks ran up so much into them. The numbers themselves aren't that worrisome, but it just seems like not enough to get them higher. Uh, And that means there's some slippage in this rotation. Yesterday really was concentrated selling in the NASDAQ 100 type names, the equal weighted S&P, the New York Stock Exchange composite, all these broader measures were a little bit down. So I I think it's, uh, you know, investors are being tested by this parade of hawkish Fed speak that just seems to come constantly. Um, everyone knows what happens around a first Fed rate hike. Everyone knows the history that it usually it doesn't kill a bull market. And usually the market's up in the six and 12 months before that. But we're already up six and 12 months pretty, pretty well. And so this valuation uh, compression in the, in the growth stocks has outsized effect on, on what's going on elsewhere if there's not this perfect, you know, uh, kind of counter move higher in the cyclical stocks. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of people you have out there who are using leverage. We always come back to this, yep. but they are. They've made a lot of money, but their hope springs eternal when it comes to the Fed having your back eventually. And I guess yeah. that it continues to be some of the key questions, Morgan, as well. Will the Fed somehow be there if the market really were to turn south in a very violent way? Or is Powell committed to combating inflation in the way that at least we've heard him say he is? I think that's such a key point for the market, and it's certainly what strategists have been homing in on as we have seen this, to use Mike's word, parade of hawkishness from Fed officials. I mean, Philly President, uh, Fed President Harker touched on this yesterday when Wilfred Frost asked about, you know, market reaction and what that could potentially mean in the midst of this tightening cycle and basically said that, you know, it's something they're going to keep an eye on. Um, You know, it, it, it speaks to the trifecta, the 
intertwinedness, if that's a word even, of the economy, of um, uh, the of the economy and of the markets, and then of course of this monetary policy that we've been seeing. Um, but uh, just to go back to uh, the banks for a second. Um, it's interesting yeah. we see, to see these names under pressure, but there were some, I think, key silver linings here. The fact that it is a strong um, credit environment, the fact that you are seeing the return of some loan growth. And then something that caught my eye in JPM's numbers was the fact that they did see an increase in auto lending, but not as strong as they would have anticipated, again, because of the vehicle shortage. And that does seem to be a theme that's already emerging in this latest earnings season, this fact that Demand continues to be strong across different industries, but that there just isn't enough product or there isn't enough inventory to keep pace with it. I mean, you can make that argument around the Sherwin-William lowering of forecast uh, this morning as well. You saw that a little bit with the SAM lowering of forecast, uh, a couple other names. Uh, so it's, that's going to be something to watch, I think, as we get this earnings season really kicking off in earnest now. Mike. Yeah. Uh, and it is a bit of a different, Mike, you know, di- sort of different stories here, as we know from, from these three big banks this morning. JPM, uh, I've got a UBS note here that says, listen, it's going to be all about the conference call in terms of the performance today. Wilford Frost will join us, by the way, later in the show to update us on that JP Morgan conference call. But that $77 billion expense number seems to be giving some investors pause. It was higher than might have been anticipated. It is reflective, perhaps, of the inflationary environment that we're in right now. But again, we will see what we get from the call. City, I mean, City, 7%, 7.4% return on common equity yeah. for the fourth quarter is not pretty. Jane Fraser doing so many different things there to reposition the bank, uh, making tough decisions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to continue to be tough. Wells is the outlier, actually, yeah. with the more positive, and you see it in the market this morning as well. Mm-hmm. Solid guide on net interest margin. Uh, expense headwinds, yes, due to inflation. But they've been dealing with sort of expenses for quite some time there under Charlie Sharp. Yeah, there is a little bit of a retooling at, at Wells Fargo that has its own momentum. I think it's giving investors a little bit of comfort. You know, City, uh, you, know, you talk about the, the kind of chronically poor returns. It's just got this kind of inefficient capital base. They're trying to restructure. Even Jane Fraser's uh, assessment of the fourth quarter was it was decent. Uh, that, uh, you know what? You went right yeah. where I was, that second paragraph. Which is, we had you know, a reality. decent end. It's, it's, you don't usually see CEOs use the word decent. Well, so she believes you know? there's a lot more to do, right? Kind of like, like telling it like it is. Yeah, it was decent. It wasn't great. It wasn't <laughs> terrible. It was decent. Uh, all right, Jane. I like that. Kind of. I'm not sure your investors do. Let's get more on this, though, this morning and uh, uh, get his tank as well, uh, his take on these bank earnings. Jeff Hart joins us from Piper Sandler. He's a senior analyst there. Uh, Jeffrey, um, just give me your take on these three names that we've been talking about this morning. Anything stand out to you in particular? Yeah, I think there, there's probably three or four things that stand out to me. One, the stocks are not reacting well. I think that's largely due to the expense guidance. Uh, for J.P. Morgan, you know, up eight and a half percent next year is more than we were expecting. But as an offset, that interest income is supposed to be up 12 and a half percent. So net net, I mean, bottom line, it nets itself out. But still, expenses in this inflationary environment are, are a focal point. And city as well, up three percent next year. I mean, the street's closer to to, uh, to up one percent. So I guess point one would be expense outlooks are probably more pressured than we thought. And that's been hurting the stock some with some offset from that interest income kind of being on the plus side uh, credit. Credit trends continue to look really good. Now, we're seeing reserve releases again, but with the size of the reserve releases this quarter, I think that people are starting to think maybe we've come to the end of reserve releases as opposed to there's more to come. So kind of helping this quarter, 
but it might imply more, even even more normalized credit uh, trends next year, which which could be kind of upsetting. And I think just kind of in the background, the uh, expectations coming into the quarter was probably for for more of a beat. Whereas you know, if you back all the items in the loan losses are released out for J.P. Morgan, I've got to miss me by about a penny, which is not bad, but. I think your, your so-called whisper number is probably out there that maybe they, they should have put up a put up a higher number than they did. Yeah, well, to your point, many, if not all of these stocks were moving up sharply as of really the beginning of this year. It's not that many trading days, but the percentage gains have been fairly high. Did they go too far too fast, in your opinion, given the numbers we've seen so far this morning? Well, I do not think they've gone too far, maybe too fast. Maybe they got a little ahead of themselves. But I think when you look out to the balance of the year, Capital markets should stay pretty robust. That interest income is turning into a better tailwind than we expected. Still no signs of credit problems. I still think this is a good environment for banks and specifically the universal banks. And I guess the one, I think, clear positive that I didn't mention, but I think I heard mentioned earlier was loan growth. I mean, J.P. Morgan had credit card loan growth, 8% sequentially. Citigroup's as close to 7%. I mean, that, that's, seeing loan growth is important, but especially on the credit card side, because you're earning you know, a 15% revenue yield on those. That, that, that's an important failure. Jeffrey, I'm curious what you thought of Wells Fargo, um, given the fact that it's sort of the loan name in the green today. I mean, it's been such a turnaround story for uh, a number of years now. Is that strategy starting to bear fruit? Is that why it's... Uh, bucking the downward trend we're seeing this morning pre-market? Well, to, to, to be fair, my, my, associate, my associate, Scott Seifert, actually covers Wells Fargo for us, but he upgraded it to buy a couple of days ago. So I think that kind of shows the way he's thinking about it. And their expense guide wasn't great either, but I think that's kind of more expected there. I mean, they kind of had some expense issues, and the net interest income guide certainly didn't disappoint. So I, I think the overall thinking out there is Charlie Sharp's kind of got the, the boat in the right direction now, and, you know, this, this could be a stock that could really outperform it. It's hard for me to look long term and say someone like a Wells Fargo or even a Citigroup, just with the franchises they have, I think that the long term outperformance is there. It's just, you know, will it be years you have to wait or not? Yeah, that, I was going to get to, to City, Jeff. I mean, the stock has had this little snapback. It's up 12 percent this month, uh, but obviously a big underperformer last year. And, and just how do you characterize wh- where they are in this process, right? Just shuffling the portfolio, deciding how to prioritize, you know, uh, kind of capital allocation. What is the core franchise? The, 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 you know, it looks a lot almost like the old Citibank uh, in the way it's being kind of reshaped as opposed to uh, the more universal bank, uh, you know, post-98. Yeah, I think the the key with Citigroup is not so much if, but when. Um, I think Jane Frazier's doing the right things. And look, the the announcement to exit Mexico, I mean, go back two years, I never would have expected that. But drastic changes are called for when your ROE's lagged as much as theirs has, and she's making drastic changes. So it's a matter of kind of when the things get better, I think, as opposed to if. And that's that's, that's the big question. I mean, I, I think if we can get some relief on the regulatory front, not that the consent orders get taken away, but at least things are trending the right way. We can keep seeing credit card loan growth there. That's important. And freeing up capital from the business sales. I think City works. It's just, I'm not sure if it works in the next six months, 12 months, or two years. Uh, Finally, J.P. Morgan's conference call, uh, always important. What are you going to be listening for? What's the key that we should be listening for? Well, I think the, 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 the expense, on the expense side of things, that, that's certainly a key is kind of the thinking there. And hopefully the thinking is we see enough growth opportunities that, that we're continuing to invest. And hopefully it's a good story. But that'll certainly be an area of focus. I think another thing will be uh, cash. And, I mean, they've got a lot of cash in their balance sheet. And unlike Bank of America, they haven't really been putting it to work. They've been holding it, saying the interest rate environment hasn't been friendly enough yet. 
to the extent they start putting some of that cash to work, I mean, it will be another thing to, to, to focus on for JP. Jeffrey, appreciate your time. Thank you. Good to be on. Thanks. All right, still to come, weaker than expected retail sales in December as Omicron and inflation surge. We'll get reaction from it. top retail analyst Matthew Boss of J.P. Morgan. And taking a look at futures still uh, to the downside, slightly off the lows of the morning. Uh, S&P 500 off 30, would still leave it above Monday's lows. Dow down 250. NASDAQ still underperforming down 100 points at this point. More Squawk in the Streets right ahead. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here. We are expecting industrial production and capacity utilization for the month of December in a few seconds. And do keep in mind, when we look at utilization rates, our last look, well, it was the best since the end of 2019. So we really want to see if we can get up as high as potentially 77%. Haven't been at a 77% utilization rate since September of 2019, and we missed it by a bit. Uh, utilization for the month of December, expected at 77.0, comes in light at 76.5, 76.5. And if we look at what the industrial production number is, we're expecting up two tenths. And like lots of data this morning, it has disappointed, and we missed there, minus one-tenth of one percent. Now, in the rearview mirror, we had a solid gain the last several months. I don't see any revisions. The up half 1% still standing at this point. Remember, keep a very close eye on the 1.7% in tens. That's basically the low yield of the week. And revisions coming in, that up 0.5 from production last month, upgrades to up 0.7. That definitely takes the sting out of down one-tenth of 1%. Squawk on the Street will return after these breaks. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Back to Squawk on the Street. Government data showing retail sales are down 1.9% last month. That was much weaker than the 0.1% drop that economists had been expecting. COVID continuing to impact retail's recovery with continuing staff shortages. Joining us now to discuss is Matthew Boss of J.P. Morgan Equity Research. Matthew, good morning to you. I do want to get your take on this retail sales number we got this morning. How much of that was, especially because we're getting in 40 minutes, a consumer sentiment reading as well. How much of this was pull forward? with supply chain issues and consumers going out to start spending for the holiday season earlier? How much of this was pandemic related? How much of this speaks to, if at all, the strength or health of the consumer as we kick off 2022 amid higher prices? So th- thanks for having me on, Bren, uh, Morgan. Look, lo- a lot to unpack in there. Mm-hmm. The, the backdrop here, I would say, December retail sales are absolutely fine, especially when you put it together with November. Holiday sales in total, on a one-year normalized basis, we're up 9%. That's actually the best holiday in nearly 20 years. And that's lapping last year, which was up 8%. You had holiday pull forward into November, number one. You had the Omicron variant, number two, which impacted store traffic, as well as store staffing, in addition to merchandise inventories, which were increasingly bottlenecked at the end of the holiday season. So. Look, we had 10 retailers in the last week for management access here at J.P. Morgan. The underlying tone on the U.S. consumer exiting the year is actually very robust into next year. Now, one thing we are watching, and we can get into it uh, if you want, is I do see 2022 more so as a tale of two halves. And that's tied to some of the inflationary costs, more on the expense side. But from an underlying consumer perspective, I think we exit this holiday in a very robust position. So I do want to get into that a little bit more because that's interesting to me, given the fact that we do know the consumer by so many metrics right now is so strong. You've got some of this fiscal cliff stimulus money that's being pulled back. The latest, the expiration of that uh, child's tax credit. Um, And then, of course, those higher prices that you just mentioned with inflation outpacing, outpacing wage gains. So who's best position in your coverage universe to benefit from this dynamic this year? Where should investors be putting their money to work in the sector? So we cited in our 22 outlook, an interesting uh, statement I thought, that in my opinion, there are many retailers that will exit the pandemic and find that it's actually harder exiting COVID than it was entering. You have wages that are higher, you have inflationary raw materials that are higher, you're lapping stimulus in the front half of 22, and on top of it, the supply chain is likely not cleared until the second half of the year. So that's the tale of two halves that we see in the front half versus the back half. I would say on the inflationary front, best positioned, in my opinion, would be value destinations. That to me is dollar stores off pricers. That's actually who was taking share before the pandemic. I think you saw market share acceleration during the pandemic. So that would be your dollar general, your dollar tree, five below. I would put Burlington, TJ Maxx, and Ross Stores also in that camp. And then I think the second theme as 2022 plays out is thinking about the next leg, which to me is global mobility. 
global tourism. We haven't really seen any of that kick in. That could be a back half of the year dynamic, depending on what the next leg of this, uh, of this virus is. Where we're more concerned, I would say, is <clears throat> discretionary spending without a catalyst. So it's sort of the caught in the middle models. I would put uh, mid-tier department stores, and, and I would say it's more of a mixed bag with, uh, with specialty retail. Mm. I mean, we keep hearing that supply chain issues are going to ease this year. We heard that last year, too. If they do ease, and we do see some of these, for example, transportation and freight costs come off and inventories begin to get rebuilt, what does that do for retailers' margins in the back half of the year, despite perhaps maybe a little more softness among consumers? It's the absolute bull case. And to me, look, I think the front half of the year, the pricing opportunity from the global brands can offset a good degree of the raw materials. I think that as the year progresses and the bottlenecks do ease, the opportunity then becomes the demand side as companies will lap the air freight mix. Meaning, even if I don't embed, and my models do not embed that ocean freight normalizes, but I do think the mix that was moved to air freight, which is far more expensive, Mm -hmm. that is a tailwind in the back half of the year from the margin front. If the demand is there, and the incremental demand that I'm talking about would be international mobility, meaning if post-Omicron, the next variant or or whatever the next leg here continues to be less severe, then I think that will be the opportunity in the back half of the year. None of my companies are planning for that in their orders, and none of them are planning for that in demand. That would be upside, and I think you could end up with a year where we have this lean inventory position all the way through and lap the supply chain, and margins actually do not moderate, which every one of my models has margins in 22 actually coming down, which would point to upside potential as the year progresses. Hmm. It's an interesting dynamic and one we'll be watching. Matthew Boss, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. All right, we got about uh, six uh, or so, uh, yeah, six minutes before we get started with what will be the final trading day of the week. By the way, no trading on Monday as well. Remember, it is a national holiday. And six minutes from now, it looks like we are going to have a decidedly negative open, at least if you own stocks. You may not be happy after yesterday's 2.5% decline for the NASDAQ. We got a lot more for you coming up, including that opening bell. Stay with us. do need to take action on inflation. And it is more persistent than we thought a while ago. I've been off of the team transitory uh, team for a while now. I think we need to take action. I think it's appropriate to take action this year. Three is what I penciled in, but four is not out of the question in my mind. You know, Mike, we talked about this at the top of the show, the idea that when you hear words like that, uh, you know, is it an appropriate market in which to buy the growth dips? This comes up all the time because, of course, that has been the right strategy in years past. Yeah. And and if you think that in general, when money gets tighter, when the Fed is in a is is taking away the the stimulus, that it's time for valuations in general to reset a little bit lower. That's a little bit what the textbook says. Well, that's where the the valuations are most stretched is in large cap growth. So you'll see that come down. The other thing the market's trying to contend with, I mentioned earlier, you can look at the history up to the first Fed rate hike. The market tends to do okay after it intends to do okay with a lot more choppiness, but there's a big distinction between fast tightening cycles and slow tightening cycles. If it's slow, if it's every other meeting, if it's every third meeting, the market actually does much better than if it's an urgent 
tightening anti-inflation campaign. So we know this going in, and there's a certain percentage of people who just believe it's always been the Fed, and that's why the market is where it is. And so they're kind of on the way out. I still think it's in the normal zone with 3% off the highs. The eco-weighted S&P is less than 2% off the highs. It feels a lot worse than it is because two stocks in the S&P are 13% of it. And Microsoft's down 13% from the high, and it's only back to where it was in October because it was up 50% last year. So that's a lot of the math that I think people are trying to get their arms around. Mm. Microsoft and Apple are... 13%. Roughly, yeah. yeah. Um, Morgan, you know, the, the balance... The, sorry, yes. The balance sheet also of the Fed sometimes is still stunning. I mean, we're, you know, it's $9 trillion, roughly. Mm-hmm. It was about $900 billion, I believe, before yes. the financial crisis. Yeah, and of course, that's in play, too, right? And that's so much of the commentary that's coming out in this parade of Fed speak that we've gotten this week as well is sort of the timing of everything, timing of liftoff in terms of interest rate increases, and then timing of a potential drawing down or shrinking of that balance sheet. Uh, it's just been a week, guys, since we went from three potential interest rate hikes based on what Fed officials were saying to now the possibility of four. You had Harker yesterday. You also have Christopher Waller, Waller saying three hikes is still a good baseline, but you could see as many as five. Yeah. Well, we're going to get with that. We're going to get started with trading here for the day, of course. Uh, we're going to the opening bell right here at the New York Stock Exchange. As so over at the Real Time Exchange here at the Big Board, Robinson Capital celebrating the recent listing of the Robinson Alternative Yield Pre-Merger SPAC ETF. They've got a pre-merger SPAC ETF. Why wasn't I informed? <laughs> At the NASDAQ, National Cares Mentoring Movement commemorating National Mentoring Month. Mike, no Pre-merger SPAC, but, but already issued, right? So it's, it's yes. the stuff that's already listed. So it's, it's already listed. Well, we have, our three, discounts, we have our three right? indexes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, yeah. we've got the SPAC that, of course, uh, have listed themselves, yes. but not yet announced or announced the deal. We've got those that have announced the deal, and then we've got post-deal. The only one that, that is at least a bit above is the actual SPACs that are still out there without having announced right. the deal. Right. It is one of the speculative parts of the market, of course, that has been hit rather hard. Yeah, gutted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've been in that mode for a while. And, you know, what we've seen, I think, is some of that pressure that's been on the no-profit uh, story-type growth stocks migrate up to, uh, to some of the big index holdings. You know, just, just rough numbers. The NASDAQ 100 went up to about 30 times forward earnings at the peak. It's down to about 27 and a half. Before, the, before COVID, before this huge ramp, it kind of topped out around 20-ish. Now, the overall market's more expensive, but that's just an idea of we're mostly just unwinding a little bit of an overshoot to the upside. Uh, and in the short term, you know, Morgan, as we mentioned earlier, the rotation's been all into financials and energy. That dynamic has happened so quickly that that's looking a little bit stretched. If you look at people who are studying, you know, kind of how fast these these kind of migrations tend to happen, that needs a rest. And so I think the market now has to digest that possibility that, uh, uh, you know, is it time to buy the growth stocks or is just everything going to be a little bit under pressure for a while? Yeah, I mean, it's such a key point. It's also worth noting, Mike, that while financials have rallied since the start of the year, energy has just trounced everything else. I mean, it's up 14 percent, and it's up again today slightly uh, within the S&P 500. So that's a what? It's a more than doubling, almost tripling of the gains we have seen in financials, despite the fact that we are having all this conversation about a Fed tightening cycle. The fact that you have seen the dollar ease, the dollar index ease this week, because, of course, that is its own story around um 
pandemic uh, recovery and reopening and the fact that there's just not enough supply to counter demand uh, within the oil and gas markets, despite the fact that we have these conversations about the shift to clean and green energies over the coming years. I want to go back to the SPAC conversation for a minute, though, because key area that we have seen so much of this selling and so much of this volatility has been those space names, which have gone public via SPACs in recent weeks and recent months. Um, Virgin Orbit actually did its first launch, orbital launch yesterday, successful, deployed seven satellites to orbit um, since going public at the end of last month. Shares are down 9% right now. Uh, And just in general, we're going to be speaking to the CEO and and co-founder of Planet Labs in the next hour Two, which also had a launch of its satellites via SpaceX yesterday. Um, these are names that are in some cases down 40, 50, even 60 percent just in the last couple of weeks from their highs, uh, which really speaks to, of course, what we've been talking about for days now. Higher interest rates, a Fed tightening cycle, the fact that that has led to this drastic rotation out of not only tech and growth, but also uh, these thematic and speculative tech names. And space, of course, fits right into that narrative, David. Yeah, and there it is. Look at that, uh, Morgan. Virgin Galactic, a name you've covered so closely, of course. One of the great performers amongst the early SPACs with, uh, obviously, Branson and Chamath. Uh, but now below, below the issue price for the SPAC. So if you, if you hung in there all the way, and obviously they sold a lot. Chamath certainly did, um, if I recall. They both did, yep. Yeah, but uh, there it is, back below 10 bucks. Uh, of course, Mike, that's not the only sort of speculative growth name, if we yeah. want to call it that, uh, or even just really growth, big, strong growth name that's gotten hit badly. I'm looking at, for instance, Shopify, which was down yeah. 9% yesterday, but up. A bit, I wouldn't call it a rebound, but hanging in there this morning. Yeah, that was that's was sort of in the initial spill uh, to, to some degree. It didn't just catch up with names like Shopify. You see, even back in February of last year, that was an aggressive peak. You know, the market, yes. it did nothing for months. Um, so that's been one of these dynamics. I did see the cloud ETFs are actually bouncing a little bit today. So that really was, uh, they were the first in for punishment. We'll see if that means that some of the selling has dried up there. Really, though, it is the banks pressuring the index at the moment. The JP Morgan's the biggest drag on the S&P right now, down 6%, just giving up a lot of this recent run. Uh, pretty, uh, you know, you hate to say it was predictable, but everyone was saying they've run a lot. They don't look very cheap based on current numbers relative to their own history. And so you have a little bit of a give back. I don't think it means it's going to undo a lot of that rotation in there. And then um, Tesla is also weak. So, you know, you have these stocks that are are giving back their their ramps from uh, from late last year. And just in terms of levels, I was mentioning on the S&P, uh, 3580 and change, uh, 4580 and change, excuse me, was Monday's low. It's also the 100-day average. It's a lot of clustering of interest in that area. So we'll see. We're not quite there yet, and maybe we don't get there. But until you got below that point, it seems like we're still kind of bouncing around uh, this this range that we've uh, we've established for the past few weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A couple of things on the research front. You mentioned Tesla. It's worth mentioning Ford this morning. Of course, we focused a lot on it. Uh, in part because of an uh, incredible increase in its uh, stock price over the last year. But even over the last couple of weeks, it's still up 18% for it is for 2022. We did get a downgrade this morning, though, at RBC. They say they remain positive on the ability of the company to, uh, to uh, make progress, but see less near-term stock upside. Um, they go on to sort of say the company has re-rated. There could be some further potential for it to re-rate as it continues to improve on 
the transition, of course, uh, to EV. But bottom line, we believe the stock price may consolidate for a while. Investors may choose to allocate capital to other names in the interim. You can see Ford down uh, 2%. And then also Disney, uh, you know, uh, there it's about direct-to-consumer. Uh, of course, Ford is no longer a $100 billion market cap right now, but it's not far below it at 90, let's call it 98. Disney is also down. Not much of a note here, but a downgrade from Guggenheim to neutral. Mike, they don't really come out and give us forecasts for, for the direct-to-consumer businesses to why they sort of don't feel quite as strongly about it. Simply to say that when they do a, some of the parts analysis, they throw a five multiple on it, they get to 82 bucks a share for direct-to-consumer. That's below the multiple they give Netflix. Why? Well, it's attributed that discount to a view of a modestly narrower addressable market, mm-hmm. which of course has been a question for the direct-to-consumer business at Disney for some time. It's deep, but is it broad enough to attract right. newer viewers in the way that they would need to to hit that 230 million sub target sure. they have for obviously yeah. out years? Yeah, and, and of course, Morgan had a lower price point too, so the average yes. revenue per user is not quite there. To me, though, the more interesting thing, just in the short term, is that you do get a, a downgrade like this after the stock's down 20 plus percent, after we've kind of known the issues, and yet the stock still is reacting negatively. So that's not the greatest uh, signal that, you know, people had fully given up uh, on it. Of course, there's a lot of reopening static in there, too, mm-hmm. the parks and, and everything else. That was exactly where I was going to go. The fact that this note does talk about and touch on parks trend volatility, cost inflation, uh, and they do note that uh, from their standpoint, going back to the metrics you just you guys just broke down and, and discussed that they do feel that uh, shares are fairly valued um, at this price. I, just, I do want to go back to the auto piece of this for a second, um, where Ford is concerned, because you did get that news uh, from via Reuters and, and uh, a source to Reuters that Tesla's delaying initial production of Cybertruck to early 2023. And Again, context, because we're specifically talking about electric pickups, but Ford Motor and Rivian are actually now going to be ahead in terms of launching their EV pickup offering. So that's going to be one to watch as that shakes out this year. And of course, we did see Ford jump pretty aggressively. What was that? Just last week when it said it was going to nearly double annual production capacity for that F-150 Lightning electric pickup. So yeah, certainly shares under pressure this morning. You do have that downgrade, but that is an interesting race in a very specific part, hot part of uh, the car market, the vehicle market here in the U.S. to watch. David. Yeah. And by uh, the way, the Nasdaq 100 is positive and the S&P is almost flat. So there's absolutely people swung right into the to the, stu- the tech stocks that have been uh, be- beaten up. We'll see if that yeah. yeah, look at that. Look at that. Already well, well, well off our lows. That can't be said, though, for the banks, although, well, J.P. Morgan is still down 5%. Let's get over to Wilfred Frost now. He's been listening in on uh, that important conference call from uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and he has highlights for us. Wolf. Yeah, so, David, as you mentioned, uh, J.P. Morgan hasn't bounced off its lows, still down about 5%. And the reason why, when you listen to that call, is just the slightly underwhelming way in which they uh, outline how the bottom line should improve in a rising rates environment. That was uh, already clear when they gave us the guidance uh, when the numbers came out. Most importantly, that net interest income uh, the guide for the year, only $50 billion, a little bit underwhelming. And that costs, expenses, would be $77 billion in the year ahead, a bit more than expected. And here's the CFO, Jeremy Barnum, kind of covering both those points. Well, we do expect NII to increase year on year 
depending on the path of rates, it may take a couple of years to return to the full NII generating capacity of the company. We are in for a couple of years of sub-target returns. Despite this, we are going to continue to invest and we're not going to let temporary headwinds distract us from critical strategic ambitions. And so looking at adjusted expenses, we expect roughly $77 billion in 2022, an increase of about $6 billion year-on-year, or 8%. But there was some positive uh, news in terms of how quickly they expect capital markets activity, which has been very strong, to normalize. We will see some normalization from exceptionally strong performance, both in IV fees and in markets. But I think we're expecting that normalization to be, you know, a little bit less, like nowhere near all the way down to the 2019 levels, um, partially because the banking pipeline is really very robust. Uh, you know, we feel good about the kind of organic growth in equities and some of the share gains there. And then in fixed income, we've already seen a decent amount of normalization there, actually. And as the monetary policy environment evolves next year, um, that could actually create, you know, some tailwinds for that business. And guys, actually, just moments uh, before you came to me, so we didn't have time to cut it, Jamie Dimon was also uh, addressing that point of investing for the long term versus trying to hit short term targets. But if I paraphrase it, he was outlining there was lots and lots of competition. We want to win. If that means investing more uh, in tech or paying slightly higher wages in the short term, that hurts your uh, multiples, your ratios, he was saying back to the analyst community, then we'll do it. And, and, and that's really kind of the gist of of this call and, and, and summed up as well by the ROTCE target, which that first soundbite we heard from the CFO saying we're in for a period of, of lower returns. The medium to long-term target is still 17%. They're just going to be a little bit below it for, for, for the year ahead, which Jamie Dimon said, by the way, I'd take 15% ROTCE forever. Again, they're doing well, just perhaps not as well as expected in the year ahead. Well, and just to put it in perspective, I mean, Citi's ROTCE for the fourth quarter was 7.4 percent, right? right. Well, now, to be fair, overall, it was higher for that. For 2021, I think it was 13.4 percent. Mm-hmm. Not a great fourth quarter for Citi as well, which is still down also. Yeah, and, and uh, Citi disappointed. Lots to dig through on the Citi one, and, and their call doesn't start uh, for, for a little while because, of course, the restructuring uh, in terms of that they're changing the way they're reporting numbers, but they've obviously been selling off uh, bits of their business. The interesting one is Wells Fargo, which, which is holding on to its gains. And uh, again, we'll have the CFO on closing bell later. That's down to decent sensitivity, slightly better than JP Morgan to the, to the way that yield curves have risen. Their net interest margin was a bit better than expected, but also uh, a difference from JP Morgan. Good, good performance on costs. Uh, different factors. It's not an increased investment uh, for long-term technology, for example, uh, but just that they've had bad performance on costs of late, and this wasn't as bad as, as previous quarters or, or the last year or two. Well, thank you, Wilfred Frost. Uh, Mike, as you pointed out, I mean, the Nasdaq is now positive. Uh, not a great, uh, you know, it lasts about three minutes, what we were well, being we'll told see. by futures. We'll <laughs> see. I mean, that's, that clearly was uh, a little bit of an opening save, and, and we'll see if that lasts. Uh, but, you know, as I said, things like Microsoft uh, have just been for sale just on this valuation adjustment, not anything else. All right, there you can take a look at the real-time exchange, of course, back at, uh, at HQ, where Morgan uh, currently resides. Yes, Tri- tri-state area represent here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know when this gap is going to be filled in, Morgan, between me and Mike. So uh, We could throw a football to each other. Yeah, exactly. Kind of have a catch during the show.
We'll see. All right, coming we'll see up. Maybe soon. Yeah, coming up, we're going to talk ESG funds. Why doing good is not always linked to doing well. First, though, let's give you a quick uh, look at the bond market. For that, we'll do the bond report. Take a look at how Treasuries are faring this morning. You can see uh, the 10-year yield at 174. That 30-year still above two at 2.083%. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Well, it's just been 17 and a half minutes since the opening bell, and we've gone from firmly lower in the major averages to a mixed picture, with the Dow leading the losses, led lower by the banks and financials, down about seven-tenths of 1%, well off the lows. S&P moving closer to the flat line, down just fractionally now, 46.50, and the NASDAQ is actually trading higher, up about a quarter of 1%. In terms of what is bucking the downward trend, at least in the S&P right now, it's the casino stocks. Las Vegas, Sands, and Wynn are actually the top two performers so so far this morning. And, Mike, this is, of course, because we are seeing uh, Macau's government saying that it's going to limit the number of casino licenses to six. And these are names that are among the six that are currently operating in Macau. Uh, their current licenses are due to expire this year. But as you can see, uh, investors are taking warmly to this development out of China, despite the fact that that is a country and region of the world that is in such tight lockdown where Omicron and COVID in general are concerned. Right. And I mean, certainly part of the bear case is that they were going to have their positions eroded in uh, in Macau. Uh, stocks down a ton. I mean, they've been popular shorts. I think it makes sense that you get a little bit of relief here. And that is what we're seeing. You see, you know, a bunch of energy and fertilizer stocks in the lead today. That's the story we know. But also, Service now, some of the cloud stocks. Uh, so finally, maybe uh, you know some some areas that got really oversold, like the casinos as well. Uh, just getting some you know a morning bid. We'll see if it uh, if it follows through. Still continue to wonder about China overall and the economy there. Uh, mm. You know, again, uh, may, forgive the pronunciation. The city of Anyang, I think a a relatively small city in China, only five and a half million people. Two Omicron cases. Morgan, they've locked the entire city down. At some point, you do wonder whether they're going to have to change their approach because of a lack of economic growth that it's leading to or whether they continue to sort of have that zero tolerance policy. I wonder why there is a zero tolerance policy. You know, the rest of the world and U.S. has certainly been on the forefront of this. It's kind of like, OK, we're going to do everything we can to navigate and work through this virus. Um, but given what we're seeing with Omicron and how quickly it has swept through the country and the fact that you do have record cases and you have a president who has said we're not going to lock down again. Um, and basically this push essentially towards herd immunity uh, implied or otherwise to see China taking such a drastically different approach, I think is very fascinating. And of course, it speaks to supply chain and it speaks to the inflation debate, too, and just how long that could stretch on, guys. Yeah. I mean, one reason is they can. <laughs> I don't think you could do it uh, in most other yeah, parts of the world. You can't do it here. Yeah. Uh, well. Also, the credit situation, the property market's uh, getting a little bit of uh, uh, attention in, on the negative side, too, and uh, out of China. But it seems like it hasn't been a key swing factor for, for our markets just yet. Um, here is a look, though, at uh, this week's worst performers so far on the S&P 500. You see uh, Etsy, Lumen Technologies, Dollar General, Estee Lauder. T. Rowe Price uh, to the downside. Squawk on the street. Be right back. Well, many investors, of course, jumping on what we call the ESG funds bandwagon. But what happens when costs enter the picture? Christina Parsonevelis joins us now. She has that part of the story. Christina. 
Yes, I do. So ESG focused funds, we know are some of the hottest investments, primarily because of the belief that an ESG fund means high quality management teams and improved returns all while doing good. But study after study shows ESG investing may not be linked to improved financial performance. So a review of roughly or over 1,000 peer-reviewed ESG studies found that, quote, the financial performance of ESG investing has on average been indistinguishable from conventional investing, often because they mimic indices. It's such a vague, broad term that you can really shove whatever you want into it and call it ESG, charge higher fees. The 20 largest ESG funds are largely allocated to information technology, and that's the trend. The concentration is in information technology, with Alphabet, the parent of Google, the most commonly held stock in 12 of the 20 largest funds, highlighting concentrated risk in one sector of the economy and almost zero allocation in energy, making fund concentration one of the key drivers behind the recent short-term outperformance of ESG funds. And yet managers can charge much more for the ESG fund title. Put that in dollars and cents terms, you're paying 20 extra bucks per year on a $10,000 investment in an ESG intentional fund relative to what you would if you invested in a fund that was ESG agnostic. And given tech has been responsible for much of the run-up in ESG ETFs as tech takes a turn lower, investors can prepare for these funds to probably follow suit. David? Hmm. So interesting. So yeah, you're ending up owning Alphabet and paying more for it, is what it sounds like, Christina. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, it's funny. I wonder if Amazon figures into that at all. You know, uh, people forget what a large carbon footprint that company has, given obviously the retail component of it. I don't know if it gets included in ESG buckets as well, or perhaps it's excluded because of that. Oh, no, no, it, it does. Uh, Microsoft, though, is actually one of the, the second largest weighted uh, stock in a lot of these funds. But uh, and I didn't see Amazon on like the top list for a lot of it, but definitely Microsoft. Uh, you can overlook. Uh, someone uh, like a lot of these companies carbon footprint, right? Because the ESG scores are just a giant score with information that the company provides. So, uh, and all of these scores vary across the board. So it really depends on which rating firm and which information they're going to use. And it just varies incredibly. Yeah. As we continue to learn, uh, Christina, thank you. Thanks. Coming up, we got more reaction to this morning's bank earnings. JP Morgan Chase, it is still dragging down the, uh, well, you know, the, some of the indexes there, but it is off its lows. Citigroup also a loser. Wells Fargo, though, doing pretty well. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.